Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her udtalt med Rana Faruha, som er økonomisk journalist og forfatter, og i øjeblikket arbejder som klumist for Financial Times. Rana Faruha skrev en bog, der hedder Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World, der udkom i efteråret 2022, og som var lidt en åbenbaring for mig. Det, som Faruha gør i bogen, det er, at hun samler de forskellige bestræbelser, Biden-regeringen har gjort, på faktisk at transformere den amerikanske kapitalisme. Dem samler hun i et stort billede, hvor hun siger, det er det største økonomiske paradigmeskift i 75 år, som er i gang. Hun siger, at det er globaliseringen, der bliver radikalt genforhandlet, og det er det, hun kalder for nyliberalismens definitive afslutning. Mange af de enkelte tiltag kender man, for eksempel Inflation Reduction Act, den store grønne investeringspakke fra Biden-administrationen. Man har måske hørt om genfortolkningen af antitrust-lovgivningen, sagsanlægget mod nogle af de store tech-giganter. Man har måske hørt om Joe Bidens indsats for at gøre det billigere at organisere sig i fagforeninger igen. Og man har måske bemærket, at USA under Joe Biden har fået en helt anden handelspolitik, som de ikke kalder for et ræs mod bunden, men et ræs mod toppen. Så de forskellige distinkte initiativer er velkendte, men det samlede billede af en administration, der faktisk tager fat helt fundamentalt om den amerikanske økonomi, som gør op med den ulighed, den uretfærdighed og den pengemagt, som har været dominerende i 40 år. Og som, og det understreger for har jo kun lige at begyndt, det er ikke sådan, så vi inden for de sidste 18-24 måneder har oplevet en socialistisk revolution i USA. Det vi har oplevet, det er det mest systematiske og ifølge Faruha overbevisende forsøg på et opgør med den nyliberalistiske revolution af USA og af verdensøkonomien. Do you hear me? Yes, can you hear me now? I hear you perfectly. Thank you so much for taking your time. Of course. Well, thanks for your interest. Her følger min samtale med Rana Faruha. <laughs> There's a personal part of the story as well that you write about in your book that you grew up in a small town in in Indiana and you've I imagine that you've been in a contrast as a business journalist between seeing this whole almost empire but at least new economic order evolving and then all the time knowing where your family came from how it affected them how, how is this schism so it's a great question um I grew as you say I grew up in in rural Indiana which is a red state it's a rather conservative state although it it used to be more purple when I grew up it was um politically more balanced um it became sort of hard right as I got older in part because of the fallout from some of the policies of the 80s and 90s in particular um under the Reagan administration sort of as part of the Reagan Thatcher revolution There was a lot of financial deregulation that allowed for mergers that created a lot of consolidation, both in the agricultural sector, but also in industry. And then later, under the Clinton administration, a Democratic administration, um, you saw the globalization of trade and the outsourcing of a lot of jobs in the rural Midwest. And in fact, my father, who at that point was running um, a large uh, American part of a Japanese auto manufacturer, was downsized uh, while I was in college. And it was a very difficult time for our family. And, you know, I grew up really seeing him work in factories, seeing 
how uh, innovation was done in manufacturing, and then also seeing the loss of those manufacturing jobs and the really the kind of collapse of the town that I grew up in. So when I came um, out east to go to university at Columbia, when I sort of joined, uh, you know, what you might call part of the global elite, you know, at places like the Financial Times, I always kept in mind that the reality, the on the ground reality was very different in many communities than what the economic theory would tell us it should be. And I, I tried to really focus on that in this book. I don't know if I've seen you write it somewhere else or whether it was in the book, I don't remember. But at least you said somewhere that you weren't so surprised about the victory of Donald Trump in 2016. And I can tell you, we were surprised because we were following American American media. And I was in America with my kids and telling them, oh, we're not too, we're not too fond of Hillary Clinton, but she will be the first female president. And that's yeah. something as well. But you weren't too surprised. No, not at all. In fact, I was watching um, the debates between Hillary and, and Donald Trump with some friends, you know, very liberal friends uh, in Manhattan. And everybody thought she was doing so well and she's so brilliant and he's a complete idiot. And I remember when the issue of trade came up and in, in particular when the issue of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement came up, which was uh, very hard for a lot of workers in the Midwest. A lot of a lot of jobs went uh, to Mexico. A lot of production started to be downsized. And he he questioned her about that. And he basically drew uh, a direct line from her husband's administration to her potential views on trade. And I thought, oh no, oh no, she has nothing to say to this. He's winning. And I think that that's what a lot of people in swing states felt. Um, and ultimately for, for Republicans even, um, the question is why did Donald Trump become the leader of your party? Well, uh, of their party, because they have nothing else to offer. You know, They don't have anything besides trickle down economic theory and the idea that, oh, just let the market uh, do what it will. The market always knows best. And that clearly wasn't working for a lot of people. And so to me, it was not a surprise that in parts of the Midwest, parts of the South that had been very hollowed out, um, you saw the rise of this sort of, you know, American autocrat, really. In your book, you write that this is a seismic shift and some ways say, well, this is this compares to the Reagan-Thatcher revolution. And other places you say, well, this is almost like once in a 75-year Time uh, time cycle span. One of those events that we're that we're witnessing now. You know, I remember writing the same stories, not not with your insight, but after the financial crisis and even after the dot com crisis. Uh, actually, what differs this time? It's a great not question. That, not that I'll blame you for my mistake in writing, but <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, I actually, in some ways, my first book, which was written after the financial crisis, was all about financialization and the disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street. And I, like you, thought that we were going to see a lot of changes right after the financial crisis. I think two things happened. Um, first, you got the Federal Reserve and the central banks of the world papering over the problems with a lot of money, right? So you saw you know, quantitative easing, very loose interest rates. And so they sort of said, okay, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. You know, we fixed this problem. They didn't really fix it. They sort of solved it with the same poison in a way, which was debt. But I think the other thing that happened is the financial world is, it's very abstract. And in some ways it can be difficult to kind of bring that story to real people. 
COVID, war in Ukraine, the supply chain disruptions, these are very real experiences. We, you know, many of us would walk into supermarkets and say, I can't find this or that, or the price of a car has gone way up because of supply chain issues. And so the disruptions to the real economy, as opposed to the financial economy, were much more felt and I think thus easier to, to speak about and understand. It seems to me that another difference is that in 2008, uh, the left or the progressive, whatever you want to call it, they weren't prepared for it. You didn't have a lot of policies. You didn't have yeah. a lot of you didn't have a lot of suggestions. And it seems to me now that you had you had the Bernie Sanders campaign. You had the Elizabeth Warren campaign. They were very, very different in their approach to policy and their theories of of change. You have the theories by Soupman and theories by Piketty. It seems that there's been a lot of development of ideas and policies on the left. I, I think that's fair. And uh, you make a good point, which is that these things take a while to develop. You know, I remember um, uh, James Carville, who's an American sort of political, political, uh, politico, telling me once it takes about five years for an idea to make its way from being an idea to being part of the felt experience and the understanding of the person, the average person. And so I think you're right that after the financial crisis, people did a lot of thinking. Those ideas are now in the public sphere and we're being talked about and you and I are having this interview. And, and so um, it takes time, but we're there now, I think, um, at the point where we're getting a new narrative. One thing that's very interesting and inspiring about your approach is that you work as a journalist. You know, a lot of people would have written this kind of book as a theorist or researcher or as a columnist, but you're actually <laughs> out in, in, in the field and you have this method of collecting experiences and, and data at the same time. How did you see this shift? That, well, that's kind of you to say, and I'm, I'm glad that that came through because it's actually something that's very important to me. Um, you know, I do work as a columnist now, and I actually work with a lot of economists, and, and that has value, that sort of um, theoretical um, approach. But I think that one of the problems of the last certainly 20 years, if not arguably the last 40 years, has been that we've had a lot of deductive thinking and not a lot of inductive um, approaches to things. And this is part of the problem, that the theories are not working well. We didn't predict the financial crisis. You know, we didn't predict, well, some of us did, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, many people didn't predict the supply chain disruptions that would come from something like the pandemic or COVID. Um, we thought the world was flat because that's what the economists told us. But those of us who are journalists and certainly real people in the world are often having a different experience. And I think it's very important to bring together the deductive and the inductive. And that's what I try to do in the book. And then you have these uh, words that are key concepts in your book, efficiency and resilience. Mm -hmm. And I think they are becoming key concepts here, here, here as well. And I noted that when Catherine Tai, she came to Davos, she was talking a lot about uh, resilience and, and uh, efficiency. Can you explain these concepts uh, to us here? Sure, absolutely. So efficiency is often used as a, a shorthand for the Chicago School way of looking at economics. And by the Chicago School, I mean the University of Chicago, Milton Friedman-esque uh, economic thinking, which would hold that as long as corporate share prices are going up and consumer prices for goods and services are going down, 
there's no problem. It doesn't matter how big companies get. It doesn't matter how much political power they have. It doesn't matter if wages are stagnating. As long as things are getting cheaper and companies are getting richer, it's all good. That has basically, particularly in the Anglo-American world, been the economic philosophy and the driver of policy for the last 40 years. But efficiency comes with its own risks. And one of the things that efficiency theory has encouraged companies to do over the last several decades is get bigger and silo their supply chains, offshore jobs to the cheapest labor locations, and um, really kind of have production done as much as possible in one place. That comes with risks. It's all good as long as everything's working properly, but the minute that you get, say, a pandemic and China wants its masks back, you know, mm-hmm. then you get a PPE shortage or um, the uh, the Ukrainian war um, means that you can't get certain auto parts uh, shipped around Europe. Or, you know, if you if you're in the case of Germany, if you get your most of your gas from an autocrat, that's a problem. And so we begin to see that efficiency isn't the same as resiliency. And resiliency involves a few things, thinking first about not just the well-being of companies and consumers, but the well-being of labor, the well-being of uh, local economic ecosystems. It also means making sure that you have multiple suppliers, be be they in companies or in countries, rather than just a single supply chain. So I could go on, but I think that this idea of efficiency not being as efficient as we thought is, is very important going forward. So where do you see it in policies, this this focus on, as I now learn, it's called resiliency and not just resilience. Where, where do you see it in concrete policies now? Well, it's interesting. You know, the Inflation Reduction Act in America, yeah. which has been quite controversial, of course, um, in Europe, uh, because it's it's essentially a climate change bill, which is meant to encourage American companies to invest more in the green transition. But there are subsidies given to U.S. manufacturing. That's been controversial um, among some allies. But that is an example of, for the first time, really, in in my memory, um, the American government saying, let's think about something aside from shareholders and, and consumers. Let's think about making the transition to a climate future. Let's think about prioritizing union labor. Let's think about creating some real carrots and sticks for companies that are doing the right things versus those that are doing the wrong things. And so that would be one example. I think, honestly, some of the decoupling that is happening with China, where um, uh, American policymakers are saying, you know what, maybe not such a good idea to be exporting um, really crucial technology to a, a country, like it or not, that is considered the major geopolitical adversary. That's also about not just letting the markets decide. So there there are many factors in this, but those are those are two good examples. There's also in 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 uh, in your book you put a lot of emphasis on on uh, the executive order by the Biden administration from July 2021. Uh, that's yeah. all uh, there was a long uh, article about this this executive order in the American prospect just just recently but you put a lot of emphasis on this specific executive order both the way it's thought the way it's enacted and what it really entails yeah absolutely so this is an order that came down um it was crafted actually by Tim Wu um in large part uh, who is the author of a book called the curse of bigness 
that gets into the problems with monopoly power, and in particular, corporate monopoly power in America. And um, he and many others in the Biden administration feel that companies just have too much power. Um, big multinational companies in America uh, have really corrupted uh, the system. And so the Biden administration put out this order and said, look, we are beyond the era of trickle down. Uh, we are not just looking at consumers and shareholders. We are looking at an entire stakeholder system where we need to bring together the public sector and private sector. We need to look at corporate power across all the different federal agencies. And we're moving to a new era in which labor matters, small business matters, um, uh, civic society matters, the public sector matters. That's a very big news for America. I mean, it's funny because in in a lot of European and particularly Scandinavian countries, you know, it, this is kind of like, well, yeah, duh. But for for America, it's, it's big. But it's it's interesting when you hear people talk about this executive order. You 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 think, well, this is a grand ideological statement. This is really something improving the the lives of of, of workers. But then it's written, you know, it, it's, it's written almost like a technocratic instrument. So it seems to me that yeah. there's a gap between what you want to do and how it's perceived. Well, yes. And I think that that gets back to your earlier point about, gosh, we thought there was going to be all this change after the financial crisis. And look how we are. We're 15, 16 years on and, and we still don't have as much as we might like. It takes time. If you think back to the Reagan-Thatcher revolution, Reagan gave the government is the problem speech in 1976 uh, when he was still governor of California. So it took a good two, three decades for these ideas to start to really trickle into the real world of policymaking. I believe that we are at that point now. I think the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, which actually is going to force companies to put more emphasis on, on labor and on workforce training. These are nascent examples of what you will see more of, which is an emphasis on work, not wealth, as Biden would say, labor as a balancer to capital. These are, again, these are quite profound concepts for Americans. It's a big shift. You know, some of the things that Obama did through executive action, they were reversed by Donald Trump when he came into office. So I think here in Denmark, we're a little worried about everything that gets done through executive action. And also because it's not a way of doing government really here. We, we don't do it that yeah. way. We go, we go through parliament, which is easier in a small country. And that, But that that's another story. The point I want to get to is that you say, in your book that there's actually some common ground here. This, this is not executive action like you did with the with the EPA or some of the climate stuff and, 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 and energy yeah. stuff. This could actually gain support from Republicans. Yeah, for sure. And that, that's actually one of the things that makes me believe that this is a long-term trend. You see um, on both sides of the aisle, the Democrats like it because they're pro-labor, they're pro-worker, um, but the Republicans like it for two reasons. One, they see these issues as national security issues. Um, they look at the market knows best approach and they say, well, what that did was outsource our entire industrial commons to China. And that's worrisome to people like, let's say, Marco Rubio um, or Josh Hawley, you know, some of the, the senators on the right. Um, I would say that someone like Robert Lighthizer, who was the U.S. trade representative under Trump, 
his ideas are not all that different from those of Catherine Tai, who is the Biden trade representative. Um, you know, I would say Biden has taken these sort of blunt force ideas from Bob Lighthizer, the tariffs, and really developed them into more of an industrial strategy that's not just about hurting other countries, but really about saying, what are we doing wrong here in America and what can we do better? But the bottom line is there is definitely overlap. Um, it's interesting, Ro Khanna, who's a, de a Democrat from California, and Rubio, a Republican from Florida, actually just co-sponsored a bill together uh, which would require all federal agencies to look through their supply chains and identify areas of risk, identify areas where there might be uh, a need for more resiliency, um, to look at monopoly power. So a lot of cross across the aisle cooperation here. You know, I spoke to Michael Sandel, who's the political philosopher up, up in Harvard a, a few weeks ago, and he said, well, he, he was very hopeful about this Biden revolution, as he called it, but he said, he was doubtful that it, it would that it would stick after Biden because so he said so much was about Biden's way of thinking about policies and Biden doing politics by instinct. Then I spoke to Ben Rhodes last week and he said, oh, this is not about Biden at all. This is just Biden being at the center of the Democratic Party. These were ideas that were developed over a decade. If you look at our administration, started with Larry Summers, ended up with with the, with Janet Yellen. And of course, we sit here in Denmark uh, saying, well, what if Biden is too old to run yet again? What, what, is, um, what, if, he, what if he's he's too old? Yeah. How, how, how dependent is this agenda on Joe Biden? Uh, great questions. We all worry about him being old as well, but um, I think he is going to run. So a few different issues there. First of all, um, the, there's a real gap in U.S. politics. I mean, you've got a lot of sort of elder statesmen like Biden. Biden is kind of pre-neoliberal. I mean, you know, he was <laughs> he was around before the Reagan-Thatcher revolution. So you've got people like that. And then you've got the kind of AOCs and the younger sort of woke progressives. But you don't have a lot of people in between. You know, I'm 52. There's not a lot of people from my era top talent that went into public policy. And that's part of the problem because that was about the Reagan-Thatcher revolution and the growth of money culture. And everybody wanted to work for McKinsey or Goldman Sachs and nobody wanted to go into government. And so there's been this sort of hollowing out of talent. That's point number one. However, I would say that this post-neoliberal world is coming with or without Biden. And I think that that is also about demographics because if you look at the younger generation of Gen X, Gen Z, the millennials in America, they don't have any asset wealth to protect. They don't have that much invested in the old system. They can't afford homes. They don't have stock portfolios. They don't certainly don't expect a job for life. And so they're very open to the idea of change. And you know, you see these Pew studies that American younger people are totally comfortable with the idea of socialism. You know, I mean, they don't really know what socialism is, frankly, like Europeans do. They don't have a nuanced uh, sense of it. But I think that what your average, uh, you know, European democratic socialist would think of as, you know, uh, a normal political system is something that younger people in America are becoming more open to. I think there's another aspect here, which for me is very interesting, is that for a lot of years, we had a lot of theories on the left that were dominant. They were very much about culture, identity, race, gender, very important. But you didn't have a lot of overlap between what you could call technocratic insight 
and then a leftist agenda. So you had a lot of people who were outraged after the financial crisis, but they didn't really know about credit default swaps. I didn't really know what derivatives were. But it seems to me that there's a kind of school around Barry Lynn and you have a new generation yeah. of, of, of intellectuals that you write about in, in the book, and they seem very interesting to me. A hundred percent. Barry is an amazing figure, and I would say he has been central to the shift. So Barry is a former journalist, and interestingly, he wrote um, in 2006 a book called The End of the Line, which is, for my money, still the best book ever written about supply chains. And it came out one year after Thomas Friedman wrote The World is Flat. And everybody should have read Barry's book because he was actually right. He was saying, not only is the world not flat, it's quite bumpy. And any kind of disruption from a tsunami in Japan to a pandemic to a war can actually disrupt this very fragile system of globalization that we've built. And so we need to think about this and take precautions. And we need to think about um, concentration of power, be it in countries like China or in companies like some of the U US multinationals, the big tech firms. And so Barry has now built a movement really around antitrust. Um, I actually sit on the board of his nonprofit, Open Markets Institute. They've been very influential in appointing people like Lena Khan uh, at the FTC, Jonathan Cantor at the DOJ, and also in getting this discussion about power in the political economy into the kitchens and the living rooms of America. Because Americans, amazingly, despite the fact that we live in a very captured society, we don't think that much about power. You know, we think about prices. We don't think about, well, who's in charge here? You know, are we ourselves living in a kind of an oligopoly that's run by the C-suite of large companies? Margrethe Vestager, who's Danish, uh, and, yeah. and, you know, and you know, when she started being the competition commissioner for, for the European Union, she said, she said, well, all she had to do was to read the uh, original antitrust legislation in America. That was everything she needed. That was the normative foundation for whatever, for, for, for whatever she did. And we were very hopeful in the beginning about the way she took on big tech. But now after four or five years, of course, we have the sense that, well, democracy is back in the game. They're not just, they're not just spectators to their concentrating power and wealth. But we also have the sensation that even though she's right, it doesn't really change anything. You know, there's a little you can do, but has the balance of power shifted over the last four or five years? Marginally, but not substantially, would be my, would be my guess. How do you see the, the real potential of, of, of this antitrust movement? It's an interesting question. I love Vestager. I think, in fact, I'm going to be next week at a, uh, or actually later this week, <laughs> losing track of time, at a big antitrust conference in Brussels where, where she'll be there. Um, uh, it's interesting because actually when, when she sort of came to power, I would have said Europe is going to be where the action is on antitrust. And in some ways, I think that the action has changed and it's now in the U.S. And that's surprising because, frankly, I think in America we have um, bigger companies to tackle, but perhaps also because the situation is so stark here. You know, there there is just such a, a superstar effect and there's been such growth and concentration in almost every industry. I mean, radically um, increased uh, over the last 20 years levels of concentration. Perhaps it's easier to 
create the storyline. Perhaps it's down to activists like Barry Lynn that you, you mentioned who have done a good job. I know that there is um, a conversation now happening transatlantically. I'm certainly part of it, Barry's part of it, where we are trying to get everybody on the same page because I believe that if the US and the EU could really come together and say, you know what? Price is no longer the metric here. First of all, price in a barter economy, which is largely what the digital economy is, it isn't even relevant. You know, the economic laws of gravity stop working. I think that that can be a really key understanding and there can be a closer alliance um, with some of the big antitrust cases, then I think I think we could see faster change. It seems to me that you have, a, at, at least in principle, an alliance between Veste and Barry Lynn and, and the Biden administration when it comes to antitrust. But when it when it comes to reinventing the investment state, when it comes to the microchips act, mm -hmm. when it comes to the IRA, Margarita Veste, who's I don't share her view, but her view is, is the following: is that as soon as you start putting uh, state money into great corporations, then you actually take money out of the pockets of citizens and you give them to shareholders. So that part, you know, she's for several reasons very yeah. skeptical about the IRA and, and, and the Microchips Act. I think yeah. Europe will eventually come along. I think Catherine Tai is right. It's not a race to the bottom anymore. It should be a race to the top. But there is a conflict here. Well, it's true. It's a good point. And, you know, perhaps her view and th that of some other Europeans is coming out of the fact that there are a lot of big sclerotic um, national champions in Europe, um, particularly in France and Germany, that, you know, are problematic. So I can understand that point of view. But I agree with you that a little bit of industrial strategy to create what um, what Bill Janeway, who is um, a Cambridge academic, would call a productive bubble and by what I'm what I mean by that is when you see throughout history periods of really shared growth where there's a big innovation and the public sector puts a floor under it and then the private sector commercializes it and the growth is shared, that's when you have a little bit of industrial strategy. And that doesn't have to mean tons and tons of public money going into certainly, you know, a wide variety of industries. Um, I do think chips we need more of. I think. The idea that you ever had 92% of all of the world's high-end semiconductors in one very highly geopolitically contentious island, Taiwan, is ridiculous. That wasn't good for China, it wasn't good for America, it wasn't good for Europe. So Europe needs more chips, America needs more chips. Making them regionally would be a good thing because it would save us on energy costs and transport, it would save us on the carbon emissions from that, and it would create more jobs regionally. That's not a zero sum game. That's a win-win game for everyone. And historically, it's those periods um, when the public sector can kind of provide a bit of a tailwind to an important new technology, be it the railroads or the internet. Um, that's when you get shared growth. And I think that we are at that moment now. Yeah. And, and that's easier for America than it is for Europe, because, you know, the European Union is made between nation state and they don't want fiscal yeah. policies. And and that's why when you're in Europe, you want to do something for the workers of Europe. You want the green transition to be a benefit for the working class. Well, it's very, very difficult. And you have a, a lot more capacity for action in America. Yeah, I guess that's probably true. And I think that that speaks to 
Europe still coming to grips with wanting the economic benefits of a union, but not wanting the shared uh, political structures. And the truth is, I don't think you can have one without the other. You're very clear in the book that globalization has failed. But I, I often wonder whether it failed for the consumers and whether when I look at my own family, to what extent they are citizens, to what extent they're workers, and to what extent they're, they're consumers. Of course, I want everyone to be citizen first, then yeah. laborers, and then consumers. But I'm not sure if you say this, this new globalization, this renegotiation of globalization, if this will mean rising uh, consumer prices, I'm not sure that they'll think it's a very good idea. I think for them, for many of them, consumer prices is more important, actually, even than labor prices. You know, it, it's it's a great question. You're pointing out the big hurdle, the big challenge uh, to this new post-neoliberal world, which is, I believe that if you look at the midterm to long term, that this will be a very good thing for um, cost of living and quality of living because it's going to create better jobs and more middle income jobs. But I think in the short term, you're right, prices will rise somewhat because if you think about, well, what's the real cost of a T-shirt? Um, if you think about human rights, if you think about, you know, do I want to buy a T-shirt that's made with cotton taken from Xinjiang, China, which is made by the tiny hands of Uyghur children, or do I want a properly made union T-shirt? Well, it's probably going to be three times the cost. That's something we're going to have to grapple with. The cost of carbon is another thing we'll have to grapple with. But I think that as these things get codified, and in, in America, the Inflation Reduction Act is actually a way to start codifying them and saying, we are going to reward companies that do the right thing, and we are not going to let in import, cheap imports. We're not going to be flooded with things that are made in ways that don't reflect our values, that you'll just simply see a change. You will see a shift. Part of this is going to be about governments being able to force companies to take on some of the burdens of the and the costs of this more resilient paradigm. And interestingly, um, I'm not sure when this program is airing, but uh, tomorrow, um, Tuesday, the uh, let's see, the 28th of February, Gina Raimondo, who's the Commerce Secretary of America, is going to put out the application form for the subsidies for the CHIPS Act. So companies that want to get subsidies to produce semiconductors or support the semiconductor industry in America are going to have to show that they are improving the workforce, that they are working with local schools, that they are working with unions, that they are actually helping to bolster the community and the commons rather than just driving down prices. So slowly but surely, we are seeing these changes. But I agree with you. It's going to have to be messaged very carefully politically. Otherwise, we risk people saying, well, I just want cheap stuff again at Walmart. Although, let me just say one more thing, which is in all OECD nations, but in America in particular, cheap stuff has not made up for the fact that all the things that make you middle class, mm -hmm. housing, education, healthcare, were growing in cost at three times the core inflation rate, even before this latest bout of inflation. In America, uh, with the interest rate hikes and the housing market being as frothy as it is, the price of a mortgage carry is about 75% higher than it was um, you know, a year ago. So a cheap TV at Walmart, a cheap gadget is not going to make up for the fact that you don't have enough money to buy a house. No, and I agree with you, but I think 
that we need your kind of a public narrative about it. You need like FDR fireside chats or, or more public. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I'm a little concerned about the technocratic instruments because they yeah. doesn't deliver the legitimacy that makes people more willing to endure some sacrifices. Yeah. Well, maybe we're having a fireside chat right now. <laughs> <laughs> and another question, if we look at the last 40 years, this era that, that, that you're describing and have been describing in, in your journalism, I think when I say to people, this was a neoliberal era, and for those who identify with the term, they would say, well, what really characterized this era was the rise of inequality. Uh, it was really the, the the rise of inequality that was the, the big damage done here. And these Inflation Reduction Act, Microchips Act, Antitrust, I don't see anything confronting inequality directly. Like, for instance, if you reform the tax code, mm -hmm. do you not need to attack the distribution of wealth together with all these other things in order not just to produce new upper classes? Uh, I, I 100% agree with you. And, um, you know, a lot of European economists, younger economists have talked about a wealth tax. Um, you know, I, I think that that would be a good idea. I think a, I would say the one caveat is that the fact that Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, was able to push through at least some harmonization of tax codes across the OECD. I think that that is that is a good thing. That's a big deal. But yes, we 100% need to tackle um, the tax code. We need to stop incentivizing debt, start incentivizing savings. That's kind of a soup to nuts transition that for sure needs to happen. But this is a long process. This is this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. We're going to be we could be having this conversation in 10 years and in 20 years, and there'll be more to talk about. <laughs> One last issue that I want to touch about is 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 about climate because. It seems a little absurd to me. I understand this is the best Biden could do for a green transition in America. And I think what he does will help us here in Europe. I think austerity will lose eventually. But what I can't help thinking also is that this is also a way of protecting the American way of life. This mm -hmm. is also a way of saying you don't need to reduce your energy consumption. You can continue living like you always did. You can just drive an electric car instead of, of the old combustion engine. So I have a feeling this is the best we can do, but there's actually also a kind of almost climate denialism about it. That's a very sharp point. Um, and you're you're sort of getting to a core issue, which is that the energy lobby in America has made it impossible to do what would be the best thing to do, which is to agree on a price of carbon and to come together with Europe and to set some uh, standards on, on how the carbon market will work and to really have a unified market. What's ironic is if we had a price on carbon, that would be the quickest way to deal with uh, the China issue because if almost immediately Chinese mercantilism would become uneconomical uh, and impossible. And so it is really a missed opportunity. I have mentioned this to a number of policymakers in the US and It's one of those things, it's like healthcare in America that, you know, you need a, a big fix and it's it's just a heavy lift politically. But I'm definitely going to keep pushing because I agree with you. I think we have not done enough on this topic and the energy, the fossil fuel lobby, and in particularly, um, you know, people like Joe Manchin, uh, the West Virginia senator, have just been terribly disingenuous and, and hurtful to the, the transition we need to make. But is there in the progressive part of the Democratic Party a realization that 
that this is the best we can do for now, but we need to talk about also biodiversity and, and you need to talk about energy consumption. Is that an agenda at all in America? It is, but it's not at the level of sophistication that it's had in Europe. And I think that there's a, a more profound point that you seem to be hinting at, which is when are Americans going to stop eating their more than their share of the pie? <laughs> you know, I mean, like we have something like what, 6% of the world's population and over 32% of the, the wealth and consumption. And eventually that is going to have to balance out. We're going to have to live in smaller homes. We're going to have to drive more efficient cars. We're going to have to bike more. You know, we have to do all these things and it's going to be painful. And I think it is going to challenge and it is challenging in the red states in particular, the idea this kind of, you know, you can come to America and live however you want, live free or die, you know, do your thing. Um, we're going to have to have a more communal society and that will be a challenge. I have just one last question for you. You emphasize the meaning of place that places matter. And this has been kind of ignored in globalization. Just say, well, people move to wherever the jobs are and wherever the growth is that the place, why is that such an important point for you that the local place matters? Well, for starters, it's not something that's been factored into economic models. You know, um, the idea that growth is different depending whether you're sitting in Malmo or Austin, you know, it's different. These are different places and job creation happens differently education schemes are different. I guess uh, maybe I'll end with a personal anecdote, which is, you know, it kind of was one of the reasons I wrote this book. I, I went to talk about some of these changes in globalization and how they affected labor in wealthy countries um, with the former labor leader in the U.S., Richard Trumpka, who used to head the AFL-CIO, which is the largest union here. And I said to him, what were the conversations that you were having with policymakers in the 1990s about this? And he said, well, someone from the Clinton administration had come to chat with him about it and said, look, we know that NAFTA, China and the WTO, we know this is going to really hurt U.S. labor and that's going to have an effect economically. But don't worry, um, eventually wages will equalize around the world. And in the meantime, you'll get a lot more cheap stuff. And Trumpka said, well, how long is that leveling out going to take? And the policymaker said three to five generations. <laughs> and that really says to me a lot about where we are, not just in the U.S., but in many parts of Europe. Economists thought that you could create jobs anywhere around the world and it would all be the same. And it wouldn't matter that entire communities were hollowed out and those communities vote. And those politicians that they elect, people like Donald Trump, can then have major impacts on the world. That just wasn't factored in. And that's why place matters. And that's something that your method is very, very good at showing the way you work as a journalist up against the economic theories. Rana Faruha, thank you so much for your work and your book and for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And you. Thank you so much. Det var så den amerikanske journalist Rana Faruha. Hendes bog hedder Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World. Den udkom i efteråret 2022. Faruha har også skrevet en bog, der hedder Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business, som handler om finanskrisen, og hun har lavet en bog om tech, der hedder Don't Be Evil, How Big Tech Betrayed Its Founding Principles and All of Us. De tre bøger kan jeg stærkt anbefale, hvis man vil gå videre med de ting, som vi har talt om her. I næste uge, der skal vi tale med forfatteren Mitu Sanyal, der har skrevet en helt fantastisk roman, der hedder Identity som handler om en professor 
i postkoloniale studier og gender studies ved Universitetet i Duisburg. Der bliver en kæmpe kanon blandt de studerende, en sand forfører og en enormt intellektuelt frigørende skikkelse. Sarasvati hedder hun. Hun bliver sådan en, de studerende flokkes omkring for at lære de nye frigørende tanker og teorier at kende, og det bliver et eksistentielt anlæggende for dem at følge Sarasvatis kurser. Det viser sig desværre, at Sarasvati, der har givet sig ud for at være inder, i virkeligheden er hvid, så hun har snydt med sin race. Hele hendes frigørelsesprojekt baserer sig på en løgn om, hvem hun oprindeligt var. Eller er det en løgn? Er det, som Sarasvatis har lært sine studerende i virkeligheden, at de skal se bort fra oprindelse og i stedet for at se, hvad er det for en identitet, vi selv skaber? Det er dramatisk, det er moralsk, det er politisk, det er radikalt, og det er helt vildt sjovt. Den bog og hele den tænkning taler jeg med Mitu Sanyal om i næste uge. Den her udsendelse var ligesom alle andre langsomme samtaler, klippet og produceret af vores gode venner hjælper Anne Pilegaard Petersen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Tak for nu.